This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Well, I'm keeping mighty good company on this very chilly winter morning. At the mouth of a river, right where it empties into the ocean on the coast of southeast Alaska. And all around me are birds. There's a big batch of mallards in here quacking and gabbling in the shallows along the shores. There's a bunch of gulls, 30 or 40 of them, some ravens hopping and waddling around quite close to me here, and lots more sitting in the snow-covered trees. And then, best of all, eight trumpeter swans, magnificent, huge birds in the calm waters of this river, very close at hand. I'm sitting right on the bank of the river, the clear, cold, slowly flowing waters. As I look at these swans, especially the ones swimming along so close at hand, I think of a description by the American children's book writer, Elizabeth Coatsworth. Calm, white calm was born into a swan. These swans gliding across the shimmering waters of this river mouth are the perfect embodiment of beauty and peace and the tranquility of the natural world. Swans are somehow birds of heaven. They inspire in you thoughts of the divine. Man, I'll tell you, this is one fine morning. It's what you dream of when you wake up somewhere in Alaska. There was a lot of snow yesterday. This morning, the sky has cleared and the mountains all around covered densely with snow, the trees beautifully laden in white, that reticulated pattern of dark and white when snow lays on conifers. It's about 15 degrees out here this morning. I got myself well bundled up. These swans look perfectly comfortable swimming in what must be just bitingly cold water. I wouldn't even want to stick my index finger in there. I now see two bald eagles, one of them sailing along just about straight overhead and now sets its wings and lands in the peak of a Sitka spruce tree shaking a bunch of snow down from the boughs up there. These eight swans are divided into five adults, pure white adults, and three younger birds, almost the same size actually as the adults, somewhat smaller, but they're a lighter gray color. Six of the swans have now come up on the shore and they're waddling around on their ample feet, one of them coming straight toward me. <laughs> Actually, if I leaned out and reached my hand, I could touch that bird right now, although I don't think that idea would get a very good reception. Oh, one of them just stands up and flaps its wings. It's been preening a little bit. Good grief, those wings are huge. The trumpeter swan can have a wingspan of up to eight feet, and man, I'll tell you, that bird has got to be every inch of that. There's a little bit of grumpiness between them. They'll move each other out of the way kind of opening their beaks and pecking at each other a little. Now, two others are just swimming here on this calm water. 
cleaving through the mirrored reflections of the mountains and the timber. And it reminds me of another little piece of writing by Thomas Hood, who said, there's a double beauty whenever a swan swims on a lake. And boy, am I ever seeing that right now. The swans swimming on top of their own reflections. And as they bend that long neck down, it makes this beautiful double loop as the swan's beak meets its own reflection in the water. Well, the trumpeter swan is the world's largest member of the waterfowl family. So these birds are pretty closely related to the ducks and the geese, and of course, very close to the other swans that live around the world. There are two kinds of swans in North America. Ours here, the trumpeter swan, and one other, the tundra swan. Both of these species are pure, brilliant white as adults. They look like polished ivory swimming on this dark water. They have a long duck-like beak. Boy, I can see that really close here with a couple of the birds that have come up right almost next to me. It's a splayed out beak, jet black. Also, the legs and prodigiously huge feet are pure jet black. My outstretched hand I don't think would be as big as the webbed feet of this swan. Now, as I mentioned, these young swans, light ashy gray color, quite different from the white adults, but they're gonna turn white when they get to be about a year old. Oh, a raven now sort of waddles right up close to one of the young swans and it opens its beak and makes a little bit of a hissing sound and says, don't come too close to me here. Well, our trumpeter swan, as I mentioned, that huge wingspan they have, these are good-sized birds. They weigh somewhere between 20 and 35 pounds, so they're as big as a pretty darn good-sized Thanksgiving turkey. Standing on the ground here, if they reach that tall neck straight up, they're going to be well above my waist. They can be a total altitude of about four feet and the whiteness of their body is slightly contrasted by a reddish-orange tinge on their necks and faces. That's a stain caused by the iron-rich soil of the marshy northern lakes where trumpeter swans feed all during the summertime. Now, the other species of swan here in Alaska, the tundra swan, looks almost identical to the trumpeter, but it's somewhat smaller. And if you look really closely, I mean very closely, you might see a bright yellow patch right in front of the eye and at the base of the bill. The trumpeter does not have that yellow patch. Their black bill goes right up blends into the black eye. Unfortunately, some of the tundra swans don't have that little yellow spot. So how do you tell them apart? You just hope they say something. Now we're hearing the voice of the trumpeter swans here. That's very different from the tundra. The trumpeter's well-named. It sounds like a trumpet. Resonant, brassy, staccato calls. And we're hearing them. They're performing a little bit for us right now. They're pretty talkative birds, actually. Now, the tundra swan has a higher-pitched, softer, much more melodious voice, something like Canada geese honking, maybe a little bit like the baying of hounds in the distance. Incidentally, that name, swan, it originates from an Indo-European root word, swen, which means to sound or to sing. There's some other interesting words that center around the swan. Young swans, for example, are called cygnets. That's from the Latin word for swan. The adult male is called the cob, coming from a Middle English word for leader. And the female in that technical swan vocabulary is a pen. The origin of that word is not known. 
Oh man, three ravens just came sailing down here, land right next to the swans. Oh, this one guy, he's a little bit brave. He's <laughs> He walks up, <laughs> crafty raven. He gets just out of reach of this swan, reaches out his beak and tries to kind of peck at him. The raven just hops away a little bit, playing kind of a game, I think. So oh, I can get close to you, you'll never catch me. And the swan now turns so close here now, I can actually see the reflection of this bright morning sky in the swan's eye. And off in the distance now, the first sunshine hitting the tops of the mountains, glowing, brilliant glow, orangey yellow color on those snow-covered timbered ridges and the pinkish clouds drifting very slowly above those peaks. Oh, some of our swans are now making their way slowly down into the water, joining the other two, a female and her young one out there swimming along on their reflections and a couple more going out into the water. And the others still very close here and actually not standing now. They're laying down on their bellies, looking just as comfortable as can be, taking a little bit of whack at the ravens. There's two of these ravens still here, still playing around in the iridescence in those ravens' feathers. Such a contrast between these deep black ravens and these brilliant white swans. Well, these swans recently migrated down here to the southeast Alaska coast. Undoubtedly, after the snows came and the lakes froze on their summering grounds farther north, probably up in interior Alaska, the two, the mother and her young one, are now working in the shoreside vegetation. And I can see them kind of pumping their feet. These birds feed in the shallows and along reedy shorelines. They eat roots, foliage, seeds of plants. For example, horsetail, sedge, bulrush, pond lily. And I can see them now pumping those big feet up and down. They do that to free the roots or plants from down in the mucky bottom underneath the water. They can also reach that very long neck down as the one white adult is doing. Now I can see her long neck and white head down there underwater. And she's freeing up plants from the bottom there they can reach down three to four feet underwater to eat. That big, flattened, duck-like beak that I can see so close here in the ones that are on shore, it has serrations along the edges, and they use that to strain edible stuff out of the water. Trumpeter swans that were studied down in Montana ate more than 20 pounds of plant food every day. Well, that's pretty darn close to the body weight of these birds, so they have a prodigious appetite. Now, these swans here, as I mentioned, probably came from interior Alaska. That's where the great majority of the world's trumpeter swans raise their young. Several thousand other trumpeters also nest down in the mountain country of western Canada and around Yellowstone National Park, and a couple thousand more in the American Midwest, where the once vanished trumpeters that had disappeared completely from that part of the world are now being restored. Tundra swans, that other species of swan, they are named for the places where they nest every summer, up on the open tundra of western and northern Alaska and across much of the Canadian Arctic. Some of the tundra swans will migrate from western and northern Alaska clear across the North American continent to their wintering grounds along the Atlantic coast of the United States, places like New Jersey and North Carolina. That's a round trip of over 7,000 miles every year for those swans. 
Now, other tundra swans will migrate instead of going across continent down the west coast and spend the winter mainly in California. Both our trumpeter swans and those tundra swans migrate north then very early in the springtime. They'll arrive on the nesting grounds just when the ice is melting off the lakes and rivers up there. And then after the summer's over, they'll leave on their southward migration very late in the fall. These are true northern birds. They like it cold. Trumpeter swans usually return to nest in the very same place where the female of the pair was born. They're very loyal to that place. Often they'll come back year after year. Swan pairs are also very loyal to each other. Trumpeters and tundra swans both mate for life. Well, unless they happen to lose their mate. Now our eight swans here divide up into one pair of adults with no young ones, another pair that has two young ones, and then there's a single with her single offspring. Now I don't know if that's a male or female. Our eyes can't tell the difference between the two, although the females tend to be somewhat smaller than the males. That one has undoubtedly lost its mate, and if that happens, they'll usually find another mate before the next nesting season begins. Young swans, like our three gray-colored ones here without mates, are going to spend next summer hanging out together in small flocks of bachelor swans. They usually won't find a mate of their own until they're two years old, and they don't start nesting until they're four to six years old. As that nesting season begins, our swans will go through lovely courtship rituals. They'll swim together in a synchronized water dance. It's wonderful to imagine what that looks like on a calm northern lake. They'll face each other with their long necks arched, bobbing their heads up and down, quivering these great feathered wings of theirs, and then they sing duets. Oh man, what a sound as these great voices echo back and forth across the great northern wilds. The female is the one who chooses the place for a nest. They'll make a great big pile of vegetation that the female and her mate pull up from the bottom of the lake or pond that they're nesting in. Oftentimes huge piles, six feet in diameter or more, a foot or two above water level. Oftentimes trumpeter swans will build their nest on top of a muskrat house or a beaver lodge or a beaver dam or else they'll just pile up vegetation from the bottom until they've created a little island. They like their nest to be separated from the shore by a little moat of water. Of course that's for protection from predators. Oftentimes a pair of swans will come back and they'll refurbish the very same nest that they used the previous year. They'll stake out a private territory. They don't want other swans impinging on their area so they'll drive them away shaking their wings, cacophony of loud trumpeting during those arguments. The female lays five to nine very large eggs. Now imagine this, four and a half inches long. Oh, think of laying a great big egg like that in the palm of your hand. Then she'll incubate the eggs. She shelters and cares for the young. Well, the male's principal work is to stand guard and to chase away predators. He's the protector. Swans are extremely sensitive to disturbance while they're nesting. Hikers, paddlers, fishermen, industrial activities, settlement, that can all drive them away from their nest or young. Now the precocious swan chicks will hatch in the very early part of summer. They take to water very quickly within the first couple of days or few days. 
Then, over the first few weeks of their lives, the little swan chicks eat a very different kind of food. They eat insects and aquatic invertebrates. That food is very high in protein. It's important for the rapid growth of those little birds. And then after that first few weeks, they'll switch to the plant food that their parents also eat. Man, imagine that these great big gray cygnets here were just little tiny fuzzy chicks a few months ago. They really have to grow fast to reach adult size to migrate with their parent birds. Well, by fall, these gray-colored young swans have reached a weight of about 20 pounds, and they're fairly safe from predators. After that, our trumpeter swans have a pretty long life expectancy, up to 35 years in captivity, more usually like 10 to 15 years for wild birds like these here. Now, our young trumpeters learned to fly near the end of this past summer. They had to be comfortably airborne in time to head in this direction, southward, toward their wintering grounds by late September or early October. Then they flew this direction along with their parents. Oftentimes, several families of swans like ours here will fly south together in a small flock. Back in 1879, the great American nature writer and conservationist John Muir watched the swans migrating when he was traveling by canoe with Tlingit Indians in southeastern Alaska, and he wrote this. A flock of swans flew past, sounding their startling human-like cry, which seemed yet more striking in this lonely wilderness. The Indians said that geese, swans, cranes, etc., making their long journeys in regular order, thus called aloud to encourage each other and enable them to keep stroke and time, like men rowing or marching. Trumpeter swans and their young usually come back to the same wintering place each year. Trumpeter swans that nest here in Alaska will winter anywhere from Prince William Sound down through southeastern Alaska and on southward along the British Columbia coast all the way to the Columbia River, Washington and Oregon. Most of them stay pretty far north, however. They often feed in freshwater lakes until those lakes freeze over, and then they'll settle in places like this, coastal estuaries, saltwater, freshwater meeting points where the water stays open all winter long. Our swans, as I look at them sitting here with their great thick coat of feathers, they're protected by a rich layer of down. This 15 or 20 degree temperature here this morning is nothing. These birds can tolerate extended cold spells at temperatures down to 20 below zero. Now down in the lower 48 states, trumpeter swans and tundra swans often winter in farm country and they feed on vegetables, unharvested grains. Sometimes they're a significant problem for the farmers who don't like them out there marauding their fields. These young swans will stay with their parents now through their first winter. They're going to migrate back north to the nesting grounds with their parents and then it's time for a new family to be raised by these adult birds. So they're going to drive the adolescents away and these birds are going to have to stay start a life on their own. Now watching our swans, all eight of them have made their way down into the water and they're just drifting around out here on the current waiting for the tide to come back in and turn this into more of a lake than a river mouth. Whoops, oh I missed, there's one still laying on the ground here just a little ways down. As I look at these birds right now feeling so comfortable around me, it's hard to imagine that less than a century ago the trumpeter swan was one of the rarest birds anywhere on earth. 
Trumpeters had been common in most of the northern United States and throughout Canada, but they were relentlessly hunted during the 19th century. That was mostly commercial hunting. The meat was sold in stores in restaurants as well as being used for subsistence. White feathers from the swans were the most valuable commodity and accounted for the really heavy hunting. Those birds were used for down comforters, for powder puffs, and especially decorated fancy women's hats. Bird feather hats were a big fashion rage back around the 1890s into the early 20th century. Many bird species were decimated, especially white ones like these swans, like the egrets. Countless thousands of richly feathered swan skins were shipped to Europe, and as a result of it, the swans became rarer and rarer. By the early 1900s, the experts figured trumpeter swans were either extremely rare or possibly extinct, and then they found a tiny remnant population in remote country in and around Yellowstone Park, and that confirmed that the trumpeter swan still existed. By 1932, only about 70 trumpeter swans were known to exist in the world. So just think of it. These eight birds would have been more than 10% of the known trumpeter swan population 70 years ago. An intense effort began then to save these birds from extinction. There was a wildlife refuge established specifically for trumpeters in Montana. The birds were fed in the wintertime to improve their chances of survival. And then over the following years, the numbers slowly began to increase. Not until 1954 did biologists discover that there was a small, unknown population of trumpeter swans nesting up here in Alaska. The first census of those birds took place in 1968. At that time, they counted 2,844 trumpeters. Strictly protected from all hunting, the trumpeter swan population then rebounded over the next 50 years, gaining momentum. By the year 2000, there were over 17,000 trumpeter swans in Alaska. And during that same year, about 6,000 more trumpeter swans in Canada and down in the lower 48 states. And so the total world population of these birds in the year 2000, about 24,000 trumpeter swans and still growing. Now, incidentally, the tundra swan, that other species, has always been more abundant than the trumpeters, and those birds were less impacted by that commercial hunting. So today, there's a growing population of over 200,000 tundra swans in North America. And those tundra swans are the ones that you're most likely to see up in the northern parts of interior Alaska and along the Arctic and western coast. There's a big effort underway, incidentally, to reestablish trumpeter swans in the American Midwest, where they had vanished long ago. It started actually when they brought swan eggs down to the Midwest from Alaska. So that was the beginning of it. Those eggs were hatched in captivity. The little birds were raised by hand and then released when they were about two years old. Some of those swans have also been kept permanently. They breed in captivity. That's to provide a seed population, more young, for release down there in the Midwestern U.S. Today, there are about 2,500 trumpeter swans in Wisconsin, in Minnesota, and in Michigan. So the swan's bugling voice that we're hearing behind us right now pours up from the marshes where it had vanished more than a century ago. So trumpeter swans are now an icon for the success of conservation. But biologists do remind us that the trumpeter population outside of Alaska is still very small. These birds can face some pretty serious problems down there. For example, drainage and filling of wetlands. These swans absolutely must have 
in order to feed a nest. There's also those human disturbances that I mentioned, these sensitive birds that will abandon their nests or eggs or their young if there's too much human activity going on around them. Lead poisoning, when the swans swallow lead shotgun pellets or fishing sinkers. They can die. The United States banned lead shotgun pellets in 1991, but there's still billions of them on the bottoms of the marshes and lakes and ponds all over the continent. Well, for thousands of years, of course, swans have been hunted for subsistence by native people here in Alaska and in other parts of the north. People in remote villages in Alaska still do take some tundra swans for their subsistence food. And swans perhaps are even more important culturally in the traditions of native people. For example, in Tlingit communities on the southeast Alaska coast, the trumpeter swan is important as a crest symbol for members of the Hluchnakadi clan. And along the northwest coast of North America, many native tribes have strong feelings about the spiritual power of these great birds, embodied especially in the swan's down feathers. Dancers performing in ceremonies will attach swans down to their elaborate carved and painted headdresses. Then the dancer will jerk his head back and forth and these downy feathers will shake free and drift in the air like big snowflakes. A very dramatic effect as if the spiritual power of the swan is floating in the air of those dancing places. Swans down and feathers are also important for inland Tlingit people who live in the Yukon Territory just across the border from Alaska. For example, shamans in inland Tlingit communities used swans down in curing and in other ceremonies that they'd perform. Athabascan people who live up in interior Alaska also regard the tundra swan in special ways. For example, a Koyukon Indian elder once told me the tundra swan, he said, is one of the smartest birds. And then he explained, these swans know which lakes are very rich in the underwater plants that they love to eat, he said. And so they'll always come back to these very same lakes. Now he said some of those lakes are too small. The swans can land in them, but these big birds take them quite a while to get off the water so they can't take off again but they're smart. They know that close by, there's a bigger lake, so they'll sail down into that little lake, feed on the rich food there, and then walk through the woods or across the marshes to that other lake where it's big enough for them to take off. Well, these great, big, spectacular birds also have had for a long, long time special significance for people all around the world. As I walk a little bit closer now to our group of swans. They're all standing in the shallows, preening. They were out there dipping and bobbing and shaking their wings and putting their heads under the water as if washing up. And now they're preening, those long necks bent over their backs to work on their wing feathers, bending down to work on their breast feathers. And all of this perfectly reflected in the waters. And in the background, the mountain completely awash in winter morning sunshine. There are some interesting swan stories and traditions that have come over to America from Europe. There are no trumpeter swans over there, but they do have our same tundra swan and the very similar looking mute swans in Europe. Perhaps the best known of all these stories is the one by Hans Christian Andersen. Of course, that's the famous story of the ugly duckling. Well, there's some other interesting traditions from the old world. For example, the swan is a symbol of love or fidelity, and of course that's because swans mate for life. 
Then, of course, we all know the expression swan song. That came across from Europe, too. It refers, of course, to someone's final work or accomplishment or some kind of dramatic last act. Well, that expression originates in a belief, actually somewhat mistaken, that the European mute swan is silent throughout all of its life, never makes any sound at all. And then just as it's dying, the mute swan sings a hauntingly beautiful song. These swans, I think, come to us like a gift, maybe a dream, a flight of angels. They bring majesty, dignity, and as I look at these swans right now, I'd have to say they also bring a very special tranquility into our lives. And when we know the story of the trumpeter swan's close brush with extinction, when we think about the commitment that people made in the past and are still making today to protect these birds, to nurture them back toward a healthy growing population, to take care of their habitat, then we can recognize that trumpeter swans are also a gift that we have given to ourselves and hopefully to the children of future generations. Well. I'm just going to perch here on the bank and hang out with these birds and with the ravens and with the gulls and the bald eagles soaring overhead as the sun comes higher until hopefully soon it'll splash down over all of us and maybe warm us up a little bit. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for your good company, and I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited by Ken Fate, produced by Lisa Bush. Theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Foundation, Alaska Conservation Foundation, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, Sue Cohn, the Skaggs Foundation, and the Scott A. Nathan Charitable Trust. For more information about the show, visit us online at EncountersNorth.org.